And good morning or good afternoon, everyone. This is Nelson Nelson J. Zambrano here on Investing in America, where we cover uh, investing in U.S. real estate and, well, on top of that, the life cycle of the real estate investment, not just a transaction. We also cover an interview, uh, have interesting individuals, entrepreneurs. In some cases, they have nothing to do whatsoever with real estate. However, they have incredible business practices that we can bring across to real estate. And this is about investing, investing in America. So today I happen to have um, a, quite an interesting young man. I say young man because he is a young man, uh, Noah Perrin. So um, Noah has done so many things in the time that he has been on the planet and uh, in the time that I've known him. So um, without any further ado, Noah, it is a pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Nelson. Pleasure is mine. Okay. So, no, wait, can and, and I'm just going to say something about Noah. I keep on bragging about this guy. Right? He's done so much. Um, he uh, has, um, he's invested in Bitcoin. He's kind of like a subject matter expert in this area. He has a couple of investment groups himself. He's invested in real estate. Um, so he he's a wealth of information. Uh, and he actually has an investment fund on top of that. And I think I mentioned that. So he has done a lot, a lot, a lot. And uh, he's uh, one of these people that is on the go and on the move. So uh, Noe, can you, can you kind of briefly, um, you know, introduce yourself to tell us a bit about you? Sure. So uh, my name is Noe. I'm 27 years old. Um, I came to America about eight years ago um, to study, go to college. And uh, prior to that, I have an international background. Uh, my parents are French and Spanish. I lived in England, Dubai, and Jamaica before in, uh, moving to the U.S. And uh, ever since pursuing my, my finance and real estate degrees uh, in the U.S., uh, I've been here just because uh, there's tremendous opportunity here and there's a lot of good people here as well. Like you said, like I said, investing in America. I think part of investing in America is investing in people like Noah. We want him to come over. So um, quick, Noah, what languages do you speak? So I'm uh, French and Spanish. That comes from my parents. And then I did all my schooling in English. So that's probably my, my strongest language. Um, and then I picked up how to say a few bad words here and there uh, in the different countries that I've been in. Uh-huh. Okay. Those are the universal ones, the, the universal ones. And, and you also speak the language of finance, which I'm impressed with. Um, how did you get started in investing in, in real estate and in investing in general? Because you cover a, a wide range. Usually people are one or the other and that's it, period. I'm in this camp. I'm not leaving. But you take a very kind of a holistic approach. Can, can you tell us a bit about that, how you got started investing in general? Right. So I would say I got started uh, getting interested in investing through traditional financial markets. So starting in the stock market, there was a we had a club in high school that was teaching students how to invest. So that's how I um, got into the world of um, investing was through actually my physics professor um, at the time. And as you mentioned, I think it's important to take a look at all asset classes. I like to say that um, asset class agnostic, because when you look at what's going on in the economy, uh, it might make sense to focus on one type of asset or, or the other based on, you know, what's going on in your life, but also what's going on uh, in the world. Mm -hmm. 
So you started in high school, huh? That's right. So uh, the entrepreneurial bug uh, bit me kind of early. Our first, my first investments were uh, flipping candy to different uh, other students, right? And uh, then I got interested in the stock market. Um, I got interested in Forex trading. That was really where I was putting money at risk. Um, I blew up. I lost all my money multiple times trading Forex with leverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those were some really good hard lessons, right? Because the, founda- the, the pain of you know, losing is really what will usually help you learn and make uh, better informed decisions going forward. Uh, which when you're dealing with more money, it's good to, you know, lose small amounts of money first so that uh, you don't lose the whole house later down the line. Uh, So those were some valuable lessons. Yeah, you know, um, you're absolutely right. Um, You know, a lot of folks, and I talk a fair amount about this, is that mindset. Um, A lot of folks have only been in an up market. uh, And of course, they feel like they're King Kong, uh, but they haven't jumped into the ring with King Kong or Mike Tyson. So people feel invincible. And they don't know what it's like to have a setback um, or an extended series of setbacks <laughs> over time. So, uh, so that, that could be something. Um, so, Noe, Noe, tell us, what, what exactly do you do? What, what do you do? Sure. So uh, I'm currently an entrepreneur. Uh, I have a company it's called Streetwise Advisors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we launched back in February of last year, so right Mm -hmm. before the COVID crisis hit. Um, Originally, I was doing a a more, I was doing a consultancy for real estate developers, um, helping them uh, analyze deals. I would partner a lot with entrepreneurs and developers who were really good at what they do in terms of uh, cutting deals with people, or perhaps they were more on the construction and development side. And uh, our company provides some support in terms of more of the analytics, financial modeling, uh, presentations for investors, those types of things. Um, But March also presented a really interesting opportunity uh, where I was also able to expand a little bit more into financial services. Um, And I got involved pretty heavily in in Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency. So we, I, I opened a, lot, a fund with some other individuals in May of last year, mm-hmm. and uh, that's been more of my focus uh, since then. Okay. Okay, good. And we're going to go into more into the, the Bitcoin side in, in a bit. I am a Bitcoin, uh, what do you call it? Illiterate. I'm Bitcoin illiterate. So we're going we're gonna to go into that. Um, but before that, you know, I'm going to ask you, do you see us? Now, COVID, uh, we're about, actually, we've passed a year mark of COVID. Uh, we've started to get some vaccinations now. Would you say that we are going into a recession? No, I think uh, we're in a recovery cycle. I think, mm-hmm. you know, there's a difference between a, a financial collapse, like what happened in 2008, and this kind of um both it was really both a demand shock and a supply shock caused by this external event, which was COVID. Um, <clears throat> so I think that initial shock is being recovered, especially when you see uh, there's, there's a lot of pent up demand. Uh, the savings rate for U.S. customers is, has never been higher at, at this point, or it's been it's relatively high to what it was in the past. So 
people have savings. They haven't been going out as much. I think as the vaccines continue to roll out, we're going to see more people return to their usual activities, right? And we're going to see um, that we're going to see GDP increase. Uh, so the demand side is is there, or it's or, or it's going in the right direction. And then at the same time, we have very high um, monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus as well. That's going to be kind of providing um, uh, it's going to be providing a good economic backdrop uh, for companies that want to expand and, and borrow money. And of course, that comes with its own set of issues. If we're printing too much money now, there's concerns around around inflation. We saw that that's been affecting the bond market. Bonds have been, you know, crashing, and the stock market also had some recent volatility. Um, but I think these forces should cancel out more or less. And so I think we're, you know, in the recovery stages here. And uh, there's, I think, there's more gains to be had in the stock market and in real estate. So this is really, really interesting. I always ask this question to every guest. Do you think we're in a recession going into a recession? Um, some have said yes, and they give me the reasons for it, and they're all valid. Some have said no, but I like the fact that you said we're in a recovery, and let me show you why. So, and uh, so one was the monetary and fiscal policy, you know, the stimulus, uh, keeping interest rates low. Uh, and the other one, which is on the other side, which is, um, well, the, the pent up demand that savings has never been this high. So, and I think part of the reason by savings has never been this high is because the lockdown made people, they had to save. I mean, they just couldn't go out and spend. So there was like, you're, you're locked down and you, you must save. Um, so, I mean, would you say that's kind of true there? I would definitely say that's true. I mean, if, just speaking from personal experience, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we used to go out to the bar and you spend, you know, a hundred dollars. That's not happening right now. And so there's many people, you know, my age that are not doing that right now either. And uh, although I'm. No, we have a little bit. That's going to help a lot of people. So what was that? You said something. I'm sorry. We had a little technical uh, difficulty, the Wi-Fi. Uh, you said before that, that your friends are going out and then it was kind of blanked. No, they're not going out right now, but they're, uh -huh. but they're itching to, right? So as soon as the lockdowns come down, I think we're going to see a lot more people spending money on the things that they used to spend money on. Mm -hmm. and, and one more point I'll say, I think also the lockdowns have contributed to maybe some of the mania that we've been seeing in the stock market, especially mm -hmm. with more retail stocks, because um, millennials, especially millennials, you know, they're working from home now. Mm -hmm. They're able to trade on Robinhood basically whenever they want. There's no boss anymore that's watching them right. and they have more money. So what are they going to do with their money? Let's do something fun, exciting, where maybe we can make a few bucks. Let's buy call options on, on GameStop. So I think um, COVID and has really accelerated um, the rate at which millennials are investing. You know, it's funny you mentioned that uh, there's a place I like to go. It's outdoors, so I can go to the eat and work outdoors, you know, circulation. And uh, and there was a millennial, millennial female in there, and she was just all over her phone, right? So I was curious. And she says, well, I'm on Robinhood. And I was like, well, what's Robinhood? So she was, you know, kind of showing me the whole thing. And she says, look, when I need to de-stress, I come here to that one spot, and I'm on that phone on Robinhood. 
So uh, it's exactly like how you presented it. Um, exactly. And, you know, her, the amount of money, I think, was like exactly the stimulus check money. I mean, it was exactly what she had going on. So, yeah. Um, okay, I was about to ask you a question. We're going to come back to that. The, um, you've got a fund, Okay, you've got a fund. And then these are some specific questions actually from listeners. You know, I, I say, hey, look, I'm interested this guy's got a fund specific. Can you tell us about the fund? What's it about? Sure. So as I had mentioned, we launched the funds uh, May of last year mm-hmm. and uh, we created it right around the Bitcoin halving, mm-hmm. which we can get into that in a second. But based on history, uh, the Following the Bitcoin halving is usually when we see the most uh, Excuse me. appreciation. No, just to make sure, Bitcoin halving, like like a stock split. Yes, so, like okay. divided into. Okay, all right. That's the point in time when the amount of new Bitcoin that are issued to Bitcoin miners mm-hmm. as a reward for running the mining machines gets cut in half. Mm-hmm. So you can think of it like the rate of inflation is becoming less and less uh, mm-hmm. over time. That okay. happens once every four years. Mm-hmm. Um, so we created this fund with the idea being that we saw what happened in, in Bitcoin's prior cycles, which tends to be these four-year cycles mm-hmm. of, of uh, basically uh, we start, the market starts off relatively rational. There's an increase, there's a mania, there's a crash. Mm-hmm. Then everybody forgets about Bitcoin. And then two years later, they remember it, they see it on CNBC, and then there's another mania. Mm-hmm. cycle repeats so uh we we effectively created this vehicle um mostly as a friends and family round as a proof of concept mm-hmm. um we, we our, our objective was to help people understand bitcoin help people mm-hmm. understand cryptocurrencies digital assets why they're valuable and also to provide um the knowledge gap to get people comfortable with investing with us. So our investment objective it was to start in May and to exit, uh, have a full exit and cash out somewhere where we think that near the top of this next Bitcoin cycle will be. We don't know what, when or how high it will go exactly, uh, but we do have a few ideas. And our goal was really just to be a vehicle uh, for our friends and family to um, participate in that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how how was the so the impetus was the friends and family as a way to educate them through and by the way put some money in and we're going to educate you along the process and you'll see the the cycle and we'll be doing some hand holding along the way. Yeah, so I would say most of that hand holding was up front, right? Uh huh. Uh huh. Once they invest with us, then we're doing the day to day management, so they're already on the train, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but we obviously always talk to our clients and, and if they have questions, we answer them. Um, but yes, we believe a big part of the value that we created was also through spreading the knowledge and not just the, the financial aspect of it. Okay, all righty. So now, what, I mean, what are the costs involved? And not just hard dollars, but let's say, what are the costs involved to get a fund started? I mean, and not just time, but like, you know, one is r- regulatory dollar amounts. Uh, well, not amounts. You can give me percentages too. Like, 
you know, with attorneys, CPAs. I mean, how, how does that, because I think of myself as a fund, especially something like Bitcoin. Real estate, it's kind of relatively simple. An air conditioner, an HVAC is an HVAC is an HVAC. And for our listeners, an HVAC is a uh, AC system for a building. Okay. Sure. So I, I, I was relatively lucky in that um, I was working for a real estate investment manager mm-hmm. uh, and I had to help them set up real estate funds. Mm-hmm. So I was able to parlay a lot of that experience over to, to the crypto uh, fund. Um, but the shell is, is relatively the same. So you have different uh, components when you create a fund, right? Um, the first one I would say would be the legal documents. There's two legal documents uh, that you're going to need. The first one is the PPM, right. which is the private placement memorandum. This document will describe the investment strategy, the terms of the deal, and all the risks involved. It's a disclosure document. Mm-hmm. The next document would be an LLC agreement or a limited partnership agreement. This would be the legal agreement between the manager and the limited partners. And that's going to have things like, you know, what's the minimum investment? How do you calculate redemption value? What are the fees, et cetera? And then you'll have your subscription form, which will be what the investor fills out. So it's actually three documents. Um, to, to get a law firm to do something like that, um, Usually it will be 20, 25,000 probably for your first offering. Um, then if you're, but if you're planning to maybe do something a little more institutional, the, those amounts can go up, right? I've seen legal bills for 50 and a hundred thousand dollars, depending on the complexity uh, of what you're doing. Right. Um, but easily you can budget a $20,000 legal bill. So you have your legal a shell set up, then you're going to need uh, different service providers, right? Um, so you, so the first one would be an administrator. And in the case of real estate, the manager could also administer the funds and do all the bookkeeping, but investors like to have for there to be a separation of duties, right? Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily want the fund manager to also be doing the books in case right, right, right. you're doing something they're not supposed to. So what we did is we hired a, a third-party company mm-hmm. and we paid them to do all the bookkeeping. They calculate all the investor balances, the performance fee, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, so they're not that expensive. We went with a company called Tudrania and they're about a couple, couple thousand dollars a month or less. Mm-hmm. And then there's an auditor. So you don't have to have your offering audited. Um, in our case, we do because it's a regulatory requirement. And so we also have an auditor on board. They audit the fund once a year just to make sure everything uh, was booked correctly uh, mm-hmm. by the administrator. Um, so those are usually your three parties. Uh, if you wanted to sell your offering to more people, you could onboard a broker dealer to mm-hmm. sell to sell your offering to the clients. Uh, but usually that's for issuers that are a little bit further down the, the road. Most people would probably do a 506B, which is mm-hmm. a private offering, right. as opposed to a 506C, which is a general solicitation. Um, the 506B is just uh, not as expensive and it's more, more obtainable, but you're limited that you can only raise to friends and family. And, and, and Noah, let me just, one second. So what Noah was talking about, just for folks, when he says 506B, 
Um, those are regulatory statutes within the uh, SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission. So there's certain rules that you have to follow. Uh, some people may find them restrictive, but they actually came out of the Great Depression to protect investors. So uh, there's accredited investors, there's sophisticated investors. There's a whole series. And you know what? We might even do a podcast on that as well. So actually, we will do a podcast on that. So um, so friends and family would be, uh, like Noe just said, um, we're going to look to do the handholding up front, the education up front. And it's for friends and family that have been asking in questions about Bitcoin. Hey, let's do this for just us. It's kind of very... This used to be called, and it still is really, used to be called country club investing because you had to be part of the country club to get invited, friends and family. We, they call it friends and family now because it sounds less snobbish, okay? Um, but it's, it's country club. If you're not part of the country club, you don't get invited. Um, and that could across the board to anything, okay? Because you got to be part of this group of people that have this... Um, specialized knowledge and expertise. So all of those things that Noe was talking about was uh, parts of the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is important because I think that's another vetting process as well. Right. You definitely want to have um, some good lawyers or some good advice before you start down this road of, of raising capital from people. Um, because if you make a misstep, you might have to go back and clean things up or even worse. Um, expose yourself to some kind of litigation. So it's super important that you speak to people before you start fundraising. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's very, very important. So, okay. So you mentioned that part of the process, I think it started in school. The other part is your right place, right time, the company you were at. So you had a lot of subject matter expertise around you. What, what did you learn in the process? And I'm going to talk about before inception during which is management and it's not as sexy as it looks right it's not like was it charlie sheen and wall street and no um right and exit we haven't gotten to that but what what have you learned along the way in doing this in inception and then in the management aspect so much nelson i, I would say you know from the inception we learned a lot about uh, making deals with people mm -hmm. uh, because everything is a negotiation, um, communicating correctly uh, in terms of setting the right expectations for investors, for example. Mm -hmm. um, if you tell them, you know, we're going to have statements every month, but they come out on the 15th, but they were expecting it on the 1st. Um, so we learned a lot about like setting the right expectations for investors, not just in terms of how much money they're gonna make, but also how the whole process is going to work. Mm -hmm. um, during the whole process, we learned a lot about um, really how much work is involved in maintaining the structure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I created the fund uh, with our partners, you know, we thought we were gonna be hedge fund managers, we we're gonna be trading all day, uh, but we didn't also realize how much ad admin that um, gets involved here. Not Somebody, as sexy as it seems. <laughs> not at all. Somebody has to process, you know, all the subscription documents, check all the KYC documents on the investors. There's accounting, there's valuations, there's audits, there's all the regulatory stuff that you need to stay uh, on. So um, the operations of it can be pretty intensive at times. Uh, I would say for anybody who's thinking about doing it, 
uh, also make sure you account for that, right? There's going to be the time that you spend managing the investment, but then there's also the time spent managing the business, right? And, and staying on top of that. It, it's been a really um, fun process, though. There's always new challenges, new people um, who want to work with us and, and always new opportunities. So it's been, uh, it's been a great learning experience all around. Okay. And because uh, there is managing the investment and then managing the business. And those are two different skill sets, I think, at times. Most definitely. I've seen that uh, with our partners, you know, it's, for example, if you're a painter and you're, you're a great artist, that doesn't necessarily, the skills of being a great artist are different from the skills of having an art company, right? The art company director has to know marketing, has to know accounting, has to you know, understand how to create a team of people. So um, some of these skills we're picking up along the way, some of the skills I've built from prior uh, ventures. Um, but I would just say, you know, being the skill, uh, building the skills of being a business owner uh, is also invaluable and mm -hmm. thinking about things in terms of systems and how do we make processes more efficient and things like that. And also how do you structure um the correct incentives for people, right? Because in our fund, for example, we we've brought in uh, people to no, either help us raise capital mm -hmm. or to help manage the portfolio. And so it's been it's been a it's been a fun experiment in terms of figuring out what's the best way to incentivize people, both in short term and in the long run. Hmm. I I bet. I bet getting those incentives in the um, okay. So we're going to kind of move into now into Bitcoin, which I know nothing about. And everybody thinks there's something about on LinkedIn every week. I must get at least three or four invitations. Somebody wants to teach me Bitcoin. All right. Or Forex. Uh, it, it, you know, it seems like everybody knows about this uh, except the people I think that actually know. So what exactly is Bitcoin? Sure. So, so Bitcoin is a money, right? And at the end of the day, all currencies are just backed by what people believe in, right? So people have faith in the euro, people have faith in the dollar. These are not necessarily really backed by anything. They're just backed by the fact that people think that it's useful as currency. And the full people... faith and credit, as they say. Right. So Bitcoin is no different, right? So what is Bitcoin? There, uh, it's basically a ledger that's stored on thousands of computers across the world. It's a decentralized ledger of debits and credits that says, you know, this wallet sent Bitcoins to that wallet, who then sent it to that wallet. And this ledger, which is secured um, by thousands of computers, by large amounts of energy that's being expended by miners worldwide, um, they're the ones. Oh, um, no, no, you said miners worldwide. What exactly yes. are those miners? Who are these folks? Okay, so there, there are different participants in the Bitcoin network. So mm -hmm. um, there, there are the node operators and there are the miners. These are the two mm -hmm. people that keep each other in checks and balances. Mm -hmm. What the miners do is that their task is to collect all the transactions that happen Mm -hmm. or order them and then put them onto the blockchain. Okay. okay. And for doing that, they're rewarded Bitcoin. They're, they're given fresh 
bitcoins that are issued to the miners. The miners in compensation, they have to expend a lot of energy, a lot of electricity through computing power to solve a mathematical problem. And this is how we make sure that the miners uh, don't lie because if they spend all this money to, to find, to order the transactions and to put those transactions onto the blockchain and they lie and the node operators uh, see that, that's their uh -huh. job. So the node operators check what the miners do. If the miners put a false transaction, their block, their block will be disregarded and a new miner will be selected to mine the next block. And so, so that's, that's how the checks and balances um, are created. And that's how we ensure uh, that the miners are not um, being, uh, not putting in fake transactions. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. If they put the incorrect transaction, then they would have spent thousands of dollars in electricity and they wouldn't have, have gotten any reward for that. Anybody in the world can run uh, a Bitcoin miner if they choose to, they probably wouldn't make money. However, anybody in the world can also be a Bitcoin node and participate in the decentralization of validating the transactions. And that's why it's so powerful. And this is why a lot of people are attracted to Bitcoin because let's say you're in Venezuela or even in the US, our money supply is being manipulated by a few people in the government, whereas Bitcoin is a network that is powered by people, by thousands of people like you and I. Mm -hmm. And it's not a system or it's not a currency that the issuance rate can be manipulated by any government or any one person. It's, mm -hmm. it's truly uh, a money for the world, you know, by the world. And so uh, it's gaining interest as a, like a trade currency that, you know, somebody in China and somebody in Africa can do a deal and they don't have to use either the Chinese currency or the African currency or the U.S. dollars. They have something that's credibly neutral. And I think that's why a lot of people like Bitcoin. Um, OK, and, yeah. so and, and again, for the listeners that are Bitcoin masters, you know, uh, for the ones that aren't. Well, let's let's dig in some more. So because. Whenever I hear words like manipulated, my, my hairs always go up, right? Because uh, mm -hmm. I hear about conspiracy theories and things. No, this is just like Noah mentioned previously, monetary policy, fiscal policy, you know, of governments. Hey, like right now, we're trying to stave off a recession. Got to keep those interest rates down so people can borrow, people can invest. Um, Bitcoin is almost, I guess you could say, neutral to any of that based upon what you're telling me, right, Noah? Right. Okay, so Bitcoin is neutral <clears throat> um, and you have miners. These are companies, individuals that are, okay, all right. Correct. Um, because just like you said, there's a lot of energy. So there's a lot of series of checks and balances along the way. Um, and then you say the nodes. Can you go a little bit into the nodes, please? The nodes are, I guess you could say they're like the judges. Mm -hmm. And their job, again, is to make sure that the Bitcoin miners are only putting transactions on the blockchain that are valid. Mm -hmm. And so the only way to <clears throat> cause uh, a deviation from that is for somebody to control more than 51% of the nodes. Mm -hmm. That's the only way that they can attack the network, really. So the nodes are responsible for just ensuring that the miners are doing what they're supposed to do. And anybody can run a Bitcoin node on any computer. Okay. Okay, so it'd be kind of theoretically impossible to the 51% because it's so decentralized. 
Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Just like the military, we have a decentralized command. You know, just because you knock off a general or an admiral, that doesn't mean uh, everybody stops doing the mission. Okay. Now, another question. You mentioned the blockchain. Okay. This is one of these things that I hear people talk about blockchain, but if I listen into far different conversations, I get four different answers, right? Um, and it, depending on how much I've had, they've been drinking at a bar, the answer is really going to change. So, mm -hmm. Noe, can you talk to us a bit about what is blockchain before we go on any further? Blockchain at its core is really just a database. Mm -hmm. So uh, blockchains are databases that are distributed on mm -hmm. many computers and all these computers come together to validate that they all have the same um, data set. Right. So they all agree that all of this, all of these transactions on this blockchain are correct. And we all affirm that that's correct. And then we create a new set of entries and we validate those new ones. And then that's how you get blocks. Each mm -hmm. block is added to the chain of blocks, to the chain of uh, transactions. So in its simplest form, the blockchain that is running for Bitcoin, for example, mm -hmm. can really only do one thing on blockchain. Uh, sorry, Bitcoin is very much like landline. The only thing I can do is call you up, which means that the only thing I can do on Bitcoin is send you or receive uh, Bitcoins. And right. the Bitcoin blockchain just has all of those transactions from the date of inception to today. Now, if you look at another blockchain like Ethereum, I would say Ethereum is a little bit more like the internet. And so the types of transactions that we can do can be more complex, more advanced. Mm -hmm. we, could, mm -hmm. we could create a smart contract, which is like a loan, for example. We mm -hmm. can make a bet and we could record that bet onto the blockchain and thousands of computers worldwide would record that transaction and validate it for us. Okay. Okay. So that's a, so just like in, let's say law enforcement chain of custody of evidence, it has to pass from one certified hand to the next certified hand chain of custody. Okay. Um, no, so now let's kind of jump into farther ahead here. What would you say is the difference for the novice uh, and by the way, folks, the folks that can't hear, Noah's being a trooper here. He's got the sun hitting him and he's like determined to go through and, uh, he's got that Florida sun, uh, working on him. So I know if you need to take a second to work on that, um, yeah. okay. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. The rest of the country can't understand that, um, because we're in Florida. So, um, so there. So, so Noe, what would you say is the major difference for a novice, you know, for a person, the differences between, let's say, comparing Bitcoin to real estate? And I'm keeping this kind of broad here. So Bitcoin to real estate. And if you want to go more specific, like raw land or income producing property, you know, you go right ahead. But I'm, I'm keeping it a bit broad for you. Sure. So I would say there's some similarities and there's obviously also some differences. Um, the main similarity, I, I would say, is scarcity. So there's only can ever be 21 million uh, Bitcoin created. And we only have second, second, there's only how many? 21 million. That, that's it, a Bitcoin? Yes. Huh. After, after that, no more Bitcoins can be created. And so it's kind of like gold, where there's only so much gold on the earth, although... I think gold in the future will 
not be so scarce because of asteroid mining mm-hmm. and the price of gold might crash that day and and humans may realize you know precious metals are actually not as scarce as they used to be mm-hmm. um but that's down the line um so there's only 21 big million bitcoins there's on, only so much land on this earth mm-hmm. so this is where the kind of store of value properties are, are similar um, but they're also a little different because Bitcoin is really like, an, it's very inert. It doesn't do anything, right? It's kind of like gold. Mm-hmm. Gold doesn't go out there and give you rent. Right. right? Gold, it can be used in industry, but it's relatively useless. Um, mm. Whereas real estate, well, it's housing, economic activity, mm-hmm. and you can actually generate um, income, rent from that. Yeah. Um, so I would say those are the main differences. I would say also, you know, Bitcoin, where it is in history is it's still a very new asset class. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's appreciating so much because humans are just discovering Bitcoin mm-hmm. for the first mm-hmm. time, right? So they're learning about what it is. They're buying into this decentralized system, this kind of free money, if you will. Real estate has been around for a long time. There's a lot of very sophisticated investors. There's a lot of established players uh, in real estate. So that was a big reason why I focused a lot on real estate the last year or so was because I saw this as an asset class that was emerging and I saw there was kind of like a first mover opportunity here. You mean, you mean that's why you focus? You just said real estate. Sorry. Yeah, okay. Yes. Okay. That's uh, why I was focusing. No, I'm hanging on every word. Okay. I'm hanging on every word. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so that's why I decided to, to focus on Bitcoin. And I think cryptocurrencies will probably have another five to 10 years until it's like a more mature um, asset class. And then at that point, well, there's the asymmetric upside of is no longer going to be there. It's going to be like any other investment. It's going to be like investing in stock. So now that's why I think now is a good time uh, for cryptocurrencies. Mm. You know, um, having this talk, you there's someone that you just brought to my mind, and I'm going to do my best to put you two guys together uh, in this area of Bitcoin. Uh, he has that same kind of a philosophy there. Um, so good, but th- thank thank you for that for that summary of the differences uh, between Bitcoin and real estate. And Bitcoin is more like raw land or gold um, there. Uh, and as far as the asteroid part. I'll make sure Elon Musk gets a copy of this podcast interview. Okay. So maybe, maybe he can launch something SpaceX off to an asteroid. The, uh, well, I, I saw a, um, an article that SpaceX bought Bitcoin on their balance sheet now. So they're sending Bitcoin to the moon. Yeah. Well, they're sending cars into space. So why not Bitcoin? So, and, and, it, and, it, and it makes sense. I mean, they're like that comment, that statement I call those futurists. People that are kind of not just hate tomorrow, but they're trying to look into the future. Um, trying to look into the future and doing a pretty good job at it too. Um, so, Noe, going back to the fund, how, how did you raise capital for uh, for the fund for the deal? Um, I mean, how, how how did that come? I mean, it's family and friends, but still, you got to have a conversation about this. And I love what you said earlier: is that the handholding started ahead of time. Instead of, you know, when the thing is right in front of you. Can, can you go into that a bit? Right. So our approach was, so actually a lot of people, so we're in this uh, investment group chat. 
mm-hmm. and um, we have a lot of friends there. We're messaging, and so for some time, uh, people were actually kind of almost asking to to give us money because they knew um, that we were in the space. Um, my business partner had been invested in Bitcoin from 2017, 16. He bought into a cryptocurrency called Chainlink, um, where what Chainlink does is they basically ensure security for smart contracts. He invested when it was at 25 cents. It's at $20, uh, $25, wow. $30 today. So, yeah, so people knew that we had an eye for this stuff. And uh, it was in my apartment on South Beach at the time. Me, me and him, we were just talking. And then one day we said, um, we're going to do it. So <laughs> <laughs> we're going to so, do it. <laughs> we're going to let's do it. Uh, we thought we were just going to raise, you know, $50,000 or something like that. And, and it would be a, a learning tool. Um, we ended up raising $2 million. Wow. So, yeah. So it, it came in stages, though. Right. So first we raised capital from from this group of friends that already knew us. Uh, they also had crypto investments. And I think for them, it was about diversifying uh, from themselves, right? Like, I, I think it's a good idea to invest, to manage your own money, but also have somebody else manage your money. That way you can diversify from yourself in case you make a bad decision. Um, so some so some people who trusted us, um, they were really the ones who wanted us to start the fund. And then we started talking to people um, about it. So it, it was very much an educational process. You know, people were hearing about it, but we had to give them the reasons why it made sense. Mm-hmm. Breaking it down, you know, what's a miner, what's a node, why is Bitcoin interesting? Also, what's going on uh, in decentralized finance, which is uh, financial transactions on blockchain, which is super interesting. Um, and then what we did uh, was we got in a, a partner to seed the funds and, mm-hmm. and they came in with a million dollars. And we gave them a an equity stake in the general partner. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. So we gave somebody equity in the manager of the fund in exchange for putting up a, a substantial investment. And that really helped us uh, level up, so to speak. And mm-hmm. then from that point, we were able to go to more serious investors. We had built up a bit of a track record by then. We had made more investments in Chainlink and other cryptos. We had probably about 150% return after that that million dollar investment came in. Um, so then we were able to leverage that, both the track record and the AUM, we had to approach other investors that we knew that were more serious and not just our friends, but also people who um, were sophisticated business people. Mm-hmm. Really. Or deeper pockets, uh, is that? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Yeah, and AUM folks is assets under management, so that's uh, that's AUM, like that. No, well, that that that's a, that's an incredible uh, um, story right there. How you were building up your team, and during the build up coming up uh, with the fund, you found out that hey, you know what, we need to get some extra resourcefulness here. So you brought this to the partner, gave him an equity stake. Obviously, this individual had confidence in all of you. Um, you know, to come in with a million because he knew that would give, and you guys knew that would also give you some more credibility, some more weight. And on top of that, 
his milling had 150% return. Um, so it doesn't get much better than that. You get an equity stake and your million turns into a million and a half. So, all right. The, so now during all this COVID comes in, how did COVID impact and how do you see COVID? And I always say this is COVID-19 and I don't mean to be negative, but that, that doesn't mean that there might be a COVID-20, right? So, um, and that's my military part, you know, contingency planning, uh, jump out of the plane with two parachutes. Um, how do you see COVID going into the future? What, what are you seeing? Mm, that's a very interesting point that you made there. Um, so uh, my base case is that there's not a COVID-20. Um, so when COVID hit, so I'll start with the past and we'll go into the future. Um, COVID, so a lot of people say, well, Bitcoin's not correlated to the stock market, which is true. Um, however, in times of extreme stress, everything becomes correlated in the financial markets and everybody uh, just wants U.S. dollars. Um, so March, uh, so March of last year obviously created huge opportunity uh, because all the prices went down. Some people were lucky; they were able to get in at cheaper prices, but a lot of people also got hurt. Um, just because the prices crashed so much, there was a lot of leverage also in the system, so people they get liquidated. Um, but what we saw was that COVID really accelerated a lot of the trends that we were seeing anyways, mm -hmm. which was remote working, uh, digital transactions, you know, people really using technology more and more. Um, so we really saw um, COVID-19 really be a boom to crypto because not just because of the, I guess, social uh, changes that are happening, people becoming more, I guess, virtual but also all the money printing that happens, right? There's mm -hmm. a, uh, over a 25% increase in the money supply in just a very short time frame. Um, so a lot of people saw that and they said, wow, you know, the US dollar is, is being debased. Um, where, where should I put my money so that its value doesn't erode? And so I, I think that's why crypto and the stock market had huge rallies um, mm -hmm. after that. Let's say th these trends continue and let's just say uh, in theory that people stay relatively uh, locked in. I think that would be good for crypto because I think um, it's, it's virtual money. People don't want to go to the bank anymore to you know, do things in person. People want to work remotely. They want to earn money uh, through the internet and, and cryptocurrency really allows for that. Um, because for example, if I want to go make a wire transfer to somebody in another part of the world and I have to go to a bank, it might take me two hours because I have to sit, wait in line, send a wire, meet up with the banker. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, meanwhile, on Ethereum, I can send somebody a transaction in two minutes that shows in their account and they can go ahead and, and do whatever they wanted with the money. So um, I think yeah, and also, you know, virtual reality is becoming more and more mainstream. And so I think uh, that the world is becoming more virtual in general. And so uh -huh. I think this is generally a positive trend uh, for, for cryptocurrencies. Uh -huh. And sorry, I'll just add one more thing, uh -huh. which, which is a little political, I guess. But a lot of people are feeling disenfranchised. Uh, with their governments. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people look at, at cryptocurrencies as 
uh, maybe not a way to fight the system, but maybe to create a new one uh, where it's more community-based and it's more based on the users and not so much on the uh, people who are calling the shots, so to speak. Uh, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and a lot of these projects, there's a huge focus on decentralization and, and really creating products that are in the best interests of the users. So, first of all, I don't see that, that people are being... You know, I mean, is that really a political statement or could be education? Because, uh, you know, I've heard people complain about things and I'm like, but that's not how government works anyway. So some people just don't know. OK, um, some, some people just don't know. Um, but I like the fact that it's decentralized. Um, you know, it's interesting, I guess. And that's so what you're saying is for COVID, uh, best case situation is there is no COVID-20. Uh, worst case it might even help because it's decentralized um, and because if it's being decentralized it might actually be a good thing. Uh, you know, yes, we have to print out more money. Uh, however, the pandemic was incredibly mismanaged, incredibly mismanaged. So um, yeah, I mean, you just got to do what you got to do to square, square the ship away. Okay. Right. I, I think if we see, uh, let's say like a slow continuation of what's been happening, that's going to be good for crypto. Uh, but if we have another situation where the market is crashing, I think I do think Bitcoin is still a risk on asset. So I think it would probably have a, a correction at least. Um, so although I'm just saying this for the listeners, right? Although it's uh, not necessarily directly correlated to the market, it can be correlated to the market. Well, you said something that really really just kind of got to me right there. You said in times of extreme stress, uh, everyone wants U.S. dollars. Okay. So my question is, is and this is, and we're kind of wargaming things out, right? We're, this is, this is heavy duty wargaming here, like in the military, when we wargame stuff out. Um, basic question. Can there be, and I don't know what the answer is. So that's why I ask you, or I shouldn't even ask a yes or no question, a run on crypto. I mean, is there ever like a crypto bailout? It's unlikely that there's, a, in the case of Bitcoin, no, because Bitcoin is, is created with a set of rules, right? There's 21 million Bitcoins. This is how they're issued to the miners. There's no airdrops of Bitcoin. There's no money printing. <laughs> I think I'm um, talking military. My goodness. Same thing for Ethereum, I would say. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, there's no cachet. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in, in one way, you could say, well, that's a bad thing because there's no backstop. In another way, it's good because you know that it's it can't be tampered with, right? So, Well, it can't be missed. Really, I think the word is on top of tampered, right? I would say it's mismanaged. Right. It, it would be... Right. I mean, there can't be like we're just I mean, that's what the bailout was. We're just mismanaging and somebody bailed us out. Um, so, yeah, somebody so- got to choose where the money went and who it went to. And mm-hmm. I think especially in terms of monetary policy and you see what's happening, the Fed, you know, prints dollars, they buy um, government treasuries from banks like the when you do a monetary stim- stimulus, the money is flowing top down. Mm-hmm. When there's a fiscal stimulus, it's more of a bottom-up uh, process, 
which I, which I think is more helpful. However, when you look at the ratio of monetary stimulus versus fiscal stimulus, there's been way more uh, monetary stimulus, which predominantly has helped people who are already wealthy, who already have assets. Mm-hmm. Those people have gotten the majority of the benefits. Right, because they're, they're getting more of what they already have and they can leverage it too. Right. So, yeah. Hmm. So, I mean, we talked about market cycles, recessions, recovery. Let's kind of go more even basic. Noe, can you share one personal habit or routine that contributes to your success besides having that awesome beard? (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I would say uh, shaving in the morning helps uh, maintain the beard. But other than that, um, I think uh, meditation practice uh, has been key. Yes. Uh, in my experience, it's just helped me <clears throat> have more awareness, mm-hmm. especially as an um, investment professional, right? Uh, trading the markets, it's all, it's mostly psychology. You're, it's you against the herd, so to speak. And it's also you against yourself. So being able to uh, see your own emotions and your own biases is is really key in what it takes to be a good trader and investor because for the most part uh where everybody when they're they're born their their first instinct will be to buy high and sell low when it's crashing so when you become a good investor it's really a process of rewiring your brain to think in the opposite way and it's a constant uh, evolution you always have to be refining yourself there yeah, you know, you're so right. Uh, the rewiring the brain, uh, I found to be the biggest challenge uh, because going against the herd. Uh, I mean, when I look back to do introspection, um, it, it's very difficult. And that's why, you know, I bring people on like you, uh, other folks who are not real estate, um, but who are one who are entrepreneurs, they have great best business practices, but also they look at the future and they can see things that quite frankly, for many of us, are we're, we have blind spots about them. We have a huge, huge blind spots. And one of them is uh, when the herd going against the herd to, and then the next challenge is to take that information and explain it and convey that to an investor um, who sometimes is in the herd, all in that herd, you know, they're, they're all in there. So, yeah. Um, now, can you talk about a time and you talked about kind of a failure previously, and I don't know if you have another one there, but a, a failure and how it contributed to your success. Sure. So um, earlier in, in my entrepreneurship journey, um, I was involved in some property management businesses mm-hmm. and um, I had a partner with me. And so we were working things together at, to cut a long story short, we were pursuing a deal uh, that then he went ahead and uh, captured without me. Mm-hmm. And so it, it kind of felt like a moment of betrayal, but there were a lot of other things uh, leading up to that. And so for me, the biggest lesson that that gave me is really uh, who you do business with is mm-hmm. probably the most important thing, M- more important than the opportunity, right? And so being an astute student of psychology and also to some extent you know uh, these concepts from like art of war and these more 
bad books, quote unquote. What, what, what um, was that? I'm they sorry. can be helpful, not what, what, not because it? you want to maliciously. No, no, no. We, we had a little books, bit of a, a loss in connection. Uh, you said Art of War, and then what else? The Art of so there are numerous books that teach about social dynamics in these kinds of. I guess confrontational environments are in the environment of business or war, um, like 48 laws of power, things like that. And those can be helpful a lot for like as a defense mechanism. Um, so you can just be more, more aware um, of who you're dealing with. So I think um, really the biggest lessons for me has just been working with good people that you know, that you trust, and also um, creating structures, like let's say we enter into a, a business arrangement, make sure you plan uh, for if things don't work out, right? So either have like a business buyout agreement clause or some way to, you know, let's say you bring in a partner to do something and they don't do it, well, you should include the vesting provision or, or something like that. Um, st structural things and, and working with people really has been um, uh, the the best lessons that I've been learning. Okay, no, that's a that's a really good. And yes, um, that is a betrayal. So that guy, uh, I'm gonna just lay it out there like that. Uh, that that's where I come from. But no, that and that's a, that's a, a bitter a bittersweet lesson. Uh, I guess it's better to learn it earlier than later. Um, to to have that. The um, and I was about to ask you. If you mentioned some, but any books, one or two books that you would recommend to people? Yes, my, my favorite book is The Magic of Thinking Big. Um, really? Yes. Schwartz? The... Is Schwartz is the author? Is Schwartz. His last name, I, I have it right here at this book uh, uh, bookcase behind me. Uh, I've got it, it's Schwartz. Wow. Yeah, it's, one of, it's one of the first personal development books that I read, so maybe uh, it's just that. Um, but I love how it teaches you to use language to frame things, right? Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. could say, oh, I'm really tired. Or you can say, I need more energy. Mm -hmm. Your brain, e either way how you spit it, the brain will either acknowledge that you're tired, make you more tired. Or you say, oh, I could use some more energy. Your brain's going to give you more energy. Um, so Magic of Thinking Big, I think, is a really good uh, foundational book. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. That's also one of the first books that I read as well. Um, and that book has helped me a lot. Uh, and even in the military, it helped me. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that's very true. Um, you know, one thing I kind of jumped around and we're going to kind of wrap up, but, but you work with foreign investors, correct? Right. Okay. So what would be the top three ideas, tips, that you could share with a foreign investor, taking into account some of them don't understand our system. Um, some may have a lot of capital overseas and the, hey, I'm a rich guy. I got, you know, this and that or family. But I've, I've had meetings with people where and, you know, in their countries, I'm having to explain to them what an escrow account is. The concept doesn't exist. So what are the top three ideas, tips that you could share with our foreign investor listeners? And it can be anything that you choose in your background, things that you've run into. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, first of all, you probably want to establish a relationship with a good attorney mm -hmm. uh, that specializes in, you know, helping offshore investors uh, come into the U.S. 
If you invest in real estate, um, things can get a little complicated, uh, especially on the tax side of things with like FERPTA and these other taxes uh, that are involved. Um, but a good attorney could help you set up um, structures to, you know, mitigate some of those issues. Um, but those structures also require administration and, and maintenance, right? So. <clears throat> investing in the U.S. In, for, in real estate, I think, is a really good idea. Our legal systems are very strong and, and the economy is relatively stable as well. Um, so speak to a good tax person. Uh, what else? Um, I think that would be really... Yeah, that, really that, that'd be the big one. So yeah. a follow-up question. And this, this one, you know, this is going to be one of the kind of difficult ones between a, and this is for the foreign investor side, between a tax attorney or a CPA that deals with foreign investors, they got to talk to them both. Who should they talk to first and why? They should probably talk to the tax advisor first or the... Sometimes there are attorneys as well, but the attorneys are the ones who are going to structure the vehicles correctly. And then the CPAs are, are typically going to be the ones who are like following the plan, so to speak. Uh, so you definitely want to have somebody who can set it up correctly um, in, the, in the beginning. It's not to say that a CPA might not have the knowledge, but I think in general, um, at least working on, on different funds, we've seen the tax advisors uh, or the tax attorneys do the structuring and then the CPAs follow through on, on the bookkeeping side of things more. Okay. okay. Yeah. And, and it, and it's a, it's a question. I'm a, I'm a huge believer in CPAs, especially not using a CPA for just, and this is a Nelson thing, not using a CPA strictly for the bookkeeping part. A C, to me, a good CPA um, and the concept of the CPA is very much a U.S. thing. Um, not a bookkeeper, not a contador in Spanish, uh, but a good CPA comes with a huge Rolodex. Nobody uses that term anymore. I still do. Uh, basically a network, a, an incredible network where they're trusted. And to me, the CPA has, well, they look at everybody's problems. I mean, that's, what it, that, that's how I look at it. They see everybody's problems. I don't need to know the names. I just need to know the solution to the problems. Um, so that to me is a huge thing and, and they get the solutions too. So, um, so yeah, definitely the, the, the attorney, the tax attorney is important and the maintenance, the construction uh, that comes along with that. Uh, I have a personal thing about the CPAs that a good CPA, international CPA gets to see all the problems and all the solutions. So, um, so yeah. Um, so no way, as we're wrapping up here, um, how can the audience reach you? And just by the way, nothing here is a solicitation. Okay. I know there's some SEC rules. So I'm going to just say it out there. Cause I'm going to take care of my friend. No way. Um, there's no solicitation. However, some people got questions. That's how I'm in no way. Um, so no, way, how can people reach you? Sure. People can, uh, they can search me up on YouTube if they want. No way parent. Uh, that's my username and handle there. Um, otherwise, 
can shoot me an email at noy at streetwise-advisors.com. Uh, those are the two, two main ways. Or, or visit my website, streetwiseadvisors.com. Okay. And Noe, um, I like always like for people to say it twice. So can you give the uh, email address and website and all the contact twice, one more time? Sure. So it's uh, my email is Noe, N-O-E, at streetwise-advisors.com. Okay. So the website is streetwise-advisors.com and you can follow me on my YouTube channel, Noe Perrin, N-O-E-P-E-R-R-I-N. Okay. And uh, folks, that's it again, Investing in America, where you can find us on Spotify and uh, iTunes. You know, every week we'll have a new episode out, have uh, either on the real estate side or entrepreneur that bring great business practices, especially now. So folks, that is about it. We will have our YouTube channel up sooner than later. So, um, you know, some nail biting going on there, but it will work out. Noe, I want to say double and triple thank you for your time. Thank you, Nelson. It's been a really uh, good experience and I appreciate you as well. Good. Same here.